Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 65. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 12 through 15 in the book of Samuel and follow with some thoughts about political apologies and their effectiveness. So in the last episode, the people finally got their king, Shaul, son of Kish, the Benjaminite. Shmuel, though ultimately compliant with the wish of the people, still wants one more whack at the mole about monarchies. He hammers away at the people with another history lesson and another warning about fidelity to God and God's path. And for the big closer, he makes it rain to drive his point home, which upsets the people tremendously because rain at the wrong time is devastating for the harvest. So Shmuel stops the rain, and there is more back and forth about fidelity and staying on the right path. And you know that the more they talk about it, they get the feeling that there's less chance they're actually going to do it. Shaul's monarchy is definitely of the frillless variety at the outset. He has no standing army, nor it seems a palace. But he does pursue a foreign policy, specifically an antagonistic one, against their number one rival in the region, the Philistines. War is afoot, and the people's spirit is flagging. Some folks have hidden out in caves, others are seeking refuge preemptively with cousins across the Jordan, and Shmuel, who's supposed to come and near offer at the pep rally, has yet to come, and the days pass, and the enthusiasm for fighting wanes, even more so. And someone has to do something, so Shaul decides to near offer, and does, just as Shmuel shows up to say, what the hell are you doing? And Shaul says, isn't it obvious? But Shmuel is not hearing that and chastises Shaul for his lack of faith and tells him that there will be no Shaulic Benjaminite dynasty, but, quote, the Lord has already sought for himself a man after his own heart. But now that the offerings have been offered, there can be a fight. And Shaul has a plan. He divides his force into three, but his forces are clearly outmanned and tragically outgunned as the Philistines have a monopoly on smithing technology. So that, quote, all of Israel would go down to the Philistines for every man to put an edge on his plowshare and his mattock and his axe and his sickle. Only Shaul and Yonatan have iron weapons. What to do, what to do. Yonatan, the king's son, decides to seize the moment taking his armor-bearer along to see what kind of mischief he can make at the Philistine garrison. Yonatan's picking off of 20 Philistines unleashes a wave of chaos that spreads quickly within the enemy lines, which is noted in the main camp of the Jews. So Shaul, rather than seizing the moment, asks for his aide to call the roll to see who's missing and for the priest to consult the Ark of the Covenant, which had been brought along as well. Eventually, the noise from the enemy camp grows so loud that Shaul tells the priest to hold off his consultation. He decides finally to attack. Incidentally, Shaul had his army swear an oath to fast until victory against the Philistines is secured. So on top of all the not fighting and eventual fighting, there was no eating, except that Yonatan, busy making mischief on the Philistine side, was not aware of the oath. So when he sees honey on the ground, he eats some, thankful for the boost in calories. But later in the day, when victory is at hand, some of the men get their hands on Philistine livestock and ravenously tear into it, blood and all, prompting Shaul to quickly erect an altar so that the men can slaughter, drain the blood, offer up, and eat appropriately. Shaul finally consults on high about the next steps. Should they continue the attack and plunder into the night? But God does not answer. It seems that someone has violated the earlier oath about fasting. So deploying the Urim Vitumim, Shaul quickly discovers that Yonatan ate. 
But before meeting out a punishment, the men speak up and defend Yonatan. Quote, will Yonatan die who has performed this great rescue of Israel? Heaven forbid, as the Lord lives, that a single hair of his head should fall on the ground. Thus, Shaul is prevented from snatching defeat out of the jaws of Yonatan's victory. In subsequent verses, Shaul secures his monarchy, doing, quote, battle round about with all his enemies, although the Philistines would persist in agitating Israel along her western border. But the real foe is Amalek, against which Shmuel charges Shaul with a double super-duper version of Cherub, including... which he sets out to do, and does, except he spares Agag, the king of the Amalekites, perhaps out of professional courtesy, and leaves the best of the best sheep, oxen, and lambs, perhaps for future near offerings. But when Shmuel comes to inspect after the victory, he is puzzled. Quote, what is the sound of sheep in my ears and the sound of cattle I hear? Shaul tries to blame the people for taking the spoils as near offerings, but Shmuel is not hearing any of that. He shoots back, quote, Does the Lord take delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in heeding the voice of the Lord? So Shaul tries a different tack and apologizes. But Shmuel is not hearing that either, and he turns to go. So Shaul reaches out to prevent the prophet from leaving, grabbing his coat and tearing it. So Shmuel ominously states, quote, The Lord has torn away the kingship of Israel from you this day. And then Shmuel asks for a sword, and then he hacks Agag to pieces. Shmuel will never set eyes on Shaul again. Thus endeth the summation, and beginneth the consideration. So the last episode of Tanakh cast ended with a resolute and decisive Shaul, one who exudes and asserts authority in galvanizing the troops to go out and fight the Ammonites. And here we are a few chapters later, and Shaul is firmly ensconced as king, but it seems like some of the shine has been taken off. The man of action is now a man seemingly filled with hesitation. When the time to strike against the Philistines is nigh, he is left waiting for Shmuel. And when his son sows chaos in the Philistine ranks, all Shaul wants to do is take attendance. Is this how a king of Israel behaves, dithering in the face of the enemy? What kind of wishy-washy, knock-kneed, namby-pamby... Okay, I might be judging uh, Shaul a, a tad too harshly. After all, in the first instance, he was waiting to launch an attack with God's and Shmuel's blessing, and Shmuel was nowhere to be found. What's there to do in that moment when you're awaiting God's spokesman to arrive to bless the proceedings and he's not coming? How long do you wait? At what point do you say to hell with it and near offer the sacrifice yourself? Are you even authorized to do that? Listen, to paraphrase JFK, if you win, victory has a thousand fathers. But if you lose, imagine the glaring headlines and 72 point the following day. Shaul oversteps, nearly near offers Israel into oblivion. And say you're not that bold as to near offer without the proper personnel. Would you send off the troops to fight without a near offering? What would that do for morale? Imagine the headlines the following day. Royal rout. Shaul sends off troops without sacrifice into certain snafu. And so you decide to wait, which, although it seems that you are paralyzed by indecision, is not actually an expression of indecision. You are choosing to wait. Acknowledging that, in that moment, this is the better alternative. Choking down each passing minute as you scan the horizon looking for Shmuel with each report from unit commanders of more and more desertions. But at a certain point... The balance inside your mind, the counseled patience shifts, and the recourse to act starts to seem 
unavoidable. The men are ready. The men are the men that are left, that is. Each minute you wait could bring you a minute closer to disaster. The fate of the nation hangs in the balance. So now, now, now! And wouldn't you know it, the minute you finally decide to near offer without Shmuel, guess who shows up? And with an attitude. So, can you really fault Shaul here? Is his decision to near offer such a heinous offense that he needs to be removed as king and his dynasty supplanted by another? And he explains his decision to Shmuel. Folks were deserting. You weren't here. The Philistines might attack, and we have not, quote, entreated the Lord's favor. Again, consider the choices before Shaul. Wait or act, victory or defeat in battle. But what he fails to acknowledge and only realizes when Shmuel arrives, and he should have realized this sooner, especially considering what he's waiting to do. It's the most important factor in his consideration, the will of God. God will not let his people be defeated unless they deserve defeat. So even if there is a mass desertion and an impending Philistine attack, a man of faith would have waited. But the thing is, how bad is it to have a man of tremulous faith sitting on the throne if he's nonetheless a good leader? I asked a similar question in episode 22 about Moshe's brother Aharon, Moshe's second in command, an eventual high priest, a man when faced with the people's demand for a golden calf to worship, balked and gave in. As I said then, as the leader of the people, even a temporary one, you're not allowed to put your own interests or personal well-being ahead of the people you lead. As the leader of the people, you're not allowed to privilege your favored value over those that must guide the nation or those that might bring down the wrath of God upon you. But here is the thing. Aharon never apologized for what he did. He tried to explain why he did it. He tried to rationalize his behavior given the circumstances, but he never apologized. And yet, he was not replaced as high priest for condoning idol worship, the biggest, worst, most unforgivable sin you could possibly commit in the world of the Tanakh. But Shaul, whose sin, if it was a sin at all, did not involve idol worship, but the facilitation of killing idol worshippers. He gets the sack? We can keep pondering the seeming injustice of this firing as we roll into Shaul's next incident. If the situation with the near offering in the Philistines was too gray area for you because maybe you too would have preempted a little bit, and perhaps there may have been some of you who maintained that Shmuel overreacted, and that hope against hope, perhaps Shmuel, the man who anointed Shaul king, might relent, this situation is much more black and white. Shmuel demands in the name of God that Shaul completely annihilate Amalek which Shaul sets out to do, and does, sort of. As I said before, Shaul spares Agag the king, perhaps out of professional courtesy, and the best of the best sheep, oxen, and lambs are set aside. And as I said before, when Shmuel confronts him, Shaul waffles a bit about sparing Agag. Then again, it's not really all that much of a waffle, he just states outright that this is what he did. But then, Shaul squarely blames the people for not destroying all the Amalekites' possessions. But even then, there's some more waffling when he shifts the blame. You see, the people didn't just keep the sheep and oxen for themselves. They didn't destroy the sheep and oxen as they had been explicitly told to do for altruistic reasons. They wanted to offer the sheep and oxen up as a sacrifice to God instead. And when Shmuel calls out this utterly lame obfuscation, Shaul quickly changes tack and apologizes. Now, apologies are tricky and come in all shapes and sizes. And thanks to Jack Marshall, lawyer and ethicist, we can employ his hierarchy to better help us appreciate Shaul's efforts. 
I'll put a link up to his blog post at the next Jew and at the show pages on Facebook and Google+. We'll start from the top of the list and descend into vacuous inanity. Here we go. Number one, an apology motivated by the realization that one's past conduct was unjust, unfair, and wrong, constituting an unequivocal admission of wrongdoing, as well as regret, remorse, and contrition, as part of a sincere effort to make amends and seek forgiveness. Number two, an apology motivated by the realization that one's legitimate and defensible action caused unanticipated, excessive, or unnecessary harm to a particular party or parties. The apology expresses a sincere regret that the harm occurred. Number three, an apology motivated by a desire to accept accountability for an event or occurrence that one may not have caused, but was responsible for in some way. Number four, a spontaneous an apology intended to demonstrate compassion and sympathy for the victim or victims of the unavoidable consequences of a necessary action. Number five, a spontaneous apology designed to prevent future preventable harm by expressing regret that a past action was necessary or that it occurred at all. Number six, a forced or compelled version of one through four, when the individual apologizing knows that an apology is appropriate, but would have avoided making one if she or he could have gotten away with it. Number seven, a forced or compelled version of one through four, in which the individual apologizing may not believe that an apology is appropriate, but that shows the victim or victims of the act, inspiring it that the individual responsible is humbling himself and being forced to admit wrongdoing by the society, the culture, legal authority, or an organization or group that the individual's actions reflect upon or represent. Number eight, a forced apology for a rightful or legitimate act in capitulation to bullying, fear, threats, desperation, or other coercion. Number nine, deceitful apologies in which the wording of the apology is crafted to appear apologetic when it is not, such as, if my words offend, I am sorry. Number 10, an insincere and dishonest apology designed to allow the wrongdoer to escape accountability cheaply and to deceive his or her victims into forgiveness and trust so they are vulnerable to future wrongdoing. Now, I would say that Shaul's apology merits a solid three, a bronze medal effort. He accepts accountability when he says he sinned. He says he didn't listen to God and Shmuel's instructions, but he throws in mention of being afraid of the men as a kind of caveat. He gave in to them, so he's responsible for that part of the mess, but the keeping of the ox and the sheep, that's on the people. Which, as political apologies go, is pretty good. Especially the closer, where Shaul begs Shmuel for his forgiveness and his company, so that, quote, I may worship the Lord. Now, consider in contrast the 1992 apology offered by American Senator Bob Packwood after making sexual advances toward female aides. He said that he took, quote, full responsibility. But when reporters asked him repeatedly what he was taking responsibility for, Senator Packwood refused to discuss specific conduct, saying, quote, I'm apologizing for the conduct that it was alleged that I did. My God. Packwood's a robust nine on the apology scale, if not a ten. Suffice to say, Packwood eventually resigned. Shaul does not resign after the Amalek debacle. This profound act of disobedience only confirms the fate meted out to him before. Shmuel is resigned, and as he turns to leave, Shaul lunges for him and tears his coat. In what I would argue is one of the more powerful and dramatic moments in the Tanakh, 
Shmuel looks down at his torn cloak and then at the king and says, quote, The Lord has torn away the kingship of Israel from you this day. Or in other words, Bafalation. If you like what you heard today, tell a friend. Send them an email to say, hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or you could do the social media thing and like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or you could leave a kind word in the comments section at thenextjew.com. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store. Or find TanakhCast at Stitcher Smart Radio or SoundCloud and leave a kind word there. It's a small thing, really, but it'll help me and help other people find TanakhCast. I thank you in advance for that. And I encourage you to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 66 when we continue in the book of Shmuel, chapters 16 through 19.